Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. Um, one of the promises that I try to make to you and try to keep each and every week is I call it my No Week Weeks pledge. I want to do the best I can each and every week, whether it's Labor Day and a lot of our folks are gone, or whether it's Kickoff Sunday and everybody's here. I want to do the best I can to each and every week bring a message that I have tried to pray through and that's researched and well um, well put together, biblically sound. I try my best to do that. You're going to notice that we've got the bulletin taco today. It is loaded with stuff. I've got extra quote sheets in there, a nine-point font. You've got a lot of substance here. And not only that, um, the kids are with us for one more week before you guys fire up with Kids Church. And so I knew the kids would be with us, so we even created an all-new skit. So we're going to pack a lot here in the next couple minutes. Um, let's dig right in. Three weeks ago, we launched a brand new teaching series where we've been exploring one of the most controversial sentences ever written in the history of humankind. Here it is, Genesis 1.1. If you have your Bibles, open with me, please, to Genesis 1, verse 1. This is one of the most controversial sentences ever written. If you don't have a Bible and aren't able to look these things up yourself, we encourage you to take one. We have uh, copies of the Bible at the, the, both the entrances. They're there for you to keep. So please take that as a gift from you or from us to you. Here we go. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is one of the most, if not the most, controversial sentence ever written. If you've been with us from the start of this series, here's a question you might have been asking as we've been exploring this sentence. You might be asking, what does this sentence have to do with the title of our series? The title of this series is The Rocks Cried Out. And we haven't specifically pressed into why we're calling the title of this series about Genesis 1-1, The Rocks Cry Out. Well, the idea for the title came as I thought about the different way that people look at fossils differently. When they see the rocks, when they see the evidence that seems to be around us, there are people that look at those fossils and they say, they speak to Genesis 1-1. They speak to the fact that this is a 6,000-year-old earth. That's what the rocks say. There's other people that see it very differently. They look at the rocks and they say these rocks, these fossils, testify to a world that's 4.6 billion years old. And then there's folks like myself and others who say, you don't have to choose just between those two. There's people that look at the same rocks, the same evidence, and they see things differently. And that brings us to our skit. Kids, I want to commend those of you who've made it. This has been more than a month. When did we? Six weeks you've been in here with us. Kids Church is finally back next week. We've done the best we can to keep it engaging for you. Um, and we're going to try one more time with one final skit. I, the Avengers will be retired for an, an indefinite period of time after this skit that we're going to do today. Today's skit is called Creation versus Evolution versus Batman. That is the skit. Now, this skit has never been done before. It's being created as we speak. We have a script. There's a couple of roles that have been pre-assigned, but we've never done this skit before all together with all the characters, in part because I'm going to get a couple of characters right now from the congregation here. So I need someone who is 10 years old or older to be Judge John T. Ralston. Come on, help me out. We've got to keep this thing moving today. We've got a lot to go. Can someone help us out and be the judge? I see that hand, Tyson. Come on up. <laughs> He's like, what? 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 I didn't have a hand up. Thank you. Thanks for being a good sport. It'll be a, it'll be a great part. Put this on, and you get the position of power right here behind the gavel, man. All right? So see how easy that is? All right. Now, we also need attorney, 
Clarence Darrow. Clarence, come on, attorney Clarence, we need you. Oh, I see that hand right there. Come on up. Yep, yeah, it's, here you go. I can get a clip on tie for, come on, come on. Right here, you. Yeah, oh, yeah, I saw that hand. Oh, my <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you. And you can, you're, you're, so whenever I say Clarence Darrow, that, that's your line. Okay. All right, so you're right over here. That's perfect. All right, thank you. Thanks. All right, and now I'm not even going to ask. The person who's going to play the part of attorney William James Bryan is sitting right here. Right here. Come on. Yep. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. You're the, your attorney. So your attorney, you're Darrow. Darrow, right? You are judge and you are James Bryan. Okay. Thanks, you guys. You're good sports. Now, this is a really easy part. No lines at all. I need someone to be the bushes and the shrubs. I can have a couple people. They can be any age. Any age. Oh, awesome. Come on up. Come on up. Yep. You get to be one of the bushes and the shrubs. We need a couple more. A couple more. How about some kids for this part? You got a couple more kids? Oh, did I mention, by the way, that all of today's participants will receive a lollipop, and not just any lollipop, a ring pop of lollipop, in assorted flavors. Here you go, there you go, can you hold that and stand? You guys are gonna be right over here. You're right over here. Yep, so whenever I say like the bushes and things, you guys help with that part. We got one more, Carl, are you in? Oh, and Carl's gonna have a helper too, awesome. All right, so you guys together, if you could take this. Perfect, and you guys are standing right over there. This is this huge forest right over there, this, these shrubs. All right, well this is not going like it went in my head, but. That's how these things go, right? All right, so now here it happens. I will be reading the script, and if you guys hear your parts, then you act this out, okay? There'll be some other characters joining us. Well, here we go. Uh, creation versus evolution versus Batman. Take one and only. In week one of our series, the Avengers saved the world from Ultron's mind control device. And in the process, they won the heart and mind of Ultron himself. How many were here for week one? All right, so you guys know exactly what we're talking about. Batman, of course, contributed absolutely nothing helpful whatsoever. The only thing that Batman did do was establish the plot line for today's drama. In our last skit, Batman was hungry, and he set out to find some lunch. And today's drama opens with Batman driving his Batmobile in search of his favorite food court, listening to his favorite jam. Nice. Suddenly, Batman's Batmobile hit a random wrinkle in the space-time continuum, and Batman found himself in Dayton, Tennessee, at the site of the famous Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925. Seeing the word court on the local courthouse, Batman assumed that he had arrived at his favorite food court. Batman stepped out of his Batmobile, walked into the courtroom, walked up to what he thought was the counter. However, this was no food counter. This was the judge's bench. And everyone in the courtroom looked at Batman in surprise and disbelief. Very good. All right. Uh, completely oblivious to all social cues, Batman said to the judge, I'll take one brooding meal, please, with fries and a chocolate shake to go. Judge Ralston had never seen anything like this before. He banged his gavel. He banged his gavel on the bench and said, Order in the court. Oh, very good. To which Batman replied, that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> Clarence Darrow asked, your honor, may I approach the bench? Your honor, may I approach the bench? Batman gave Darrow the stink eye and said, hey, buddy, no budging. William James Bryan yelled, your honor, I object. Your honor, I object. To which Batman replied, I object too. This is the worst service ever. William James Bryan spoke up again. This time he said, Your Honor, Your Honor, I ask that you hold this man in contempt. Your Honor, 
Batman shrugged him off saying, go ahead. Most of Gotham already does. And do you know why? Because I'm Batman. Just then, all the actors in the courtroom froze as the Avengers came flying in on their Quinjet. All right, with Hawkeye, with Hawkeye at the controls, the Quinjet was able to perfectly hit the exact same wrinkle in the space-time continuum and landed the Quinjet near some bushes outside of the courthouse. The bushes concealed the Quinjet, concealed the Quinjet as the Avengers stepped out of their vehicle. Captain America assembled his team and said, we've got to stop Batman, got to stop Batman. from being Batman. But we have to be sneaky. Anything we do in the past can affect the future. Captain America continued. Natasha, he said, I need you to sneak in like a ninja and put one of Ultron's mind control devices on Batman. Hawkeye spoke up. Hawkeye spoke up. And Hawkeye said, mm, Captain? This is Labor Day weekend. Do you remember you gave Hulk and Black Widow the day off? Ultron pulled out his iPhone and said, that's right. Ultron said, that's right. They just sent me this cute picture of the two of them standing in line for ye old mill. And here they are sharing a sweet Martha's cookie. Oh, touching. Hawkeye, Hawkeye continued and said, uh, you gave Iron Man the day off too. And Ultron showed everyone a picture of Iron Man eating deep fried shawarma on a stick with Nick Fury photobombing him in the background. Thor, Thor jumped in and Thor said, I shall fill in for the Black Widow and the Iron Man in their absence. And in stealthy Black Widow or fashion, Thor did several completely unnecessary flips as he snuck in with the mind control device. <laughs> he placed the mind control device on Batman's head and snuck out remarkably completely undetected. <laughs> when, when Thor returned to their hiding place behind the shrubs, he said, I shall now come up with a clever quip. On behalf of our absent comrade, Iron Man. Captain America said, we don't have time for that right now. Ultron, use your mind control device to override Batman's brain so we can get him out of there. Hawkeye looked at Captain America and said, Cap, you do know this is Batman, don't you? And sure enough, the mind control device had absolutely no effect on Batman. And do you know why? Because he's Batman, quipped Thor. Even though Batman's brain was too unique to be affected by Ultron's device, Batman did notice that there was now a tray-shaped object on his head. Thinking that he was soon to receive his brooding meal, Batman stepped off to the side of the courtroom close to where the Avengers were hiding. Batman was standing near an open window, and Captain America saw a window of opportunity. Captain America said to Hawkeye, Clint, do you have any taser arrows? 
Hawkeye saw where Captain America was going with this. He pulled a taser arrow from his quiver and he aimed it at Batman. Captain America asked, Hawkeye, can you tase Batman so we can get him out of here? And Hawkeye replied, Captain, it would be my sincere pleasure. Hawkeye fired his taser arrow, and the arrow found its mark. Batman fell to the ground, and the Avengers all did their dramatic fist-pump action pose. Once again, the Avengers had saved the day. And before heading to the back of the room to get their ring pops, the entire cast took a bow, and the congregation cheered wildly. All right. Thanks, you guys. Go, go back and get your ring pop, all right? There you go. Thank you. Good job. Go back and get a ring pop, all right? Good job. Oh, hey, thanks, you guys, for bailing us out there. Appreciate it. You are great, great sports. One of my all-time favorite memories was watching uh, Bob Studi be Iron Man last time. And when he flew out like this, that was... The best, that best. All right, what were we talking about? Well, here's what we're talking about. Some of you might be asking yourself, what does a skit have to do with today's theme? Well, truth be told, very little. Um, <laughs> we wanted to have some fun with the kids, but there is a very loose tie-in, and the very loose tie-in is this. Just like Batman saw the word court and thought he was heading into a food court, there are people who use the term evolution in very different ways. They apply the term evolution in very different ways ways. What I want to do today with the short time we've got left is to briefly touch on four different theories of evolution. And let's start with this one. All right, the first one is this, and there's a place to write these down on the green insert, if you can find it amidst all the other inserts. The green insert, there's a place to write this down in your notes. Some people look at evolution as the theory of everything. Some people see evolution as the theory of everything. Throughout this series, I've been referring to a man named Richard Dawkins. He's a person who believes you've got to choose between God and evolution. He does things like this. He refers to the example of an eyeball, and he claims that the designer would have utilized a more intelligent design. He points to different types of trees and says, if there is an intelligent designer, why wouldn't you have all the trees be the same height? Because that would be much more efficient in setting them competing for sunlight. He also asked questions like this. He said, why would a creator place lemurs in Madagascar, but nowhere else? Now, opinions like this are very easy to counter, aren't they? Uh, take the first one. There are people like myself who point to the eyeball as evidence of what's called irreducible complexity. There are people who believe that redwoods are not inefficient, they're beautiful, and that a designer would design beauty into his creation. And there's other people who would ask, why would you not place lemurs only in Madagascar? Why would you not put discoveries in every corner of this, unique discoveries in every corner of the cosmos? When our family was at the Naples Zoo this spring, here's a sign that caught my eye. I snapped this on my phone. Uh, the picture says, of, is of a sign there, and it says, Why the Long Face? This is at the Anteater exhibit, and it says something very interesting. It says that anteaters were, quote, built to beat bugs. It's interesting how our language sometimes betrays us. Dawkins himself in his book uses similar language. Here are some words and phrases that he uses as he makes a case against a designer. He uses words and phrases like ingenious and modified and complicated machinery and tinkering and even invented. And as I was reading Dawkins' book, some of you are going to get a kick out of this, I found myself thinking that almost everything that he's saying lines up with what the Bible says about us being fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Here are his own words. This is his summary at the end of the book. This is his own words, someone who's arguing against there being a creator. He says this, How is it we find ourselves not merely existing, but surrounded by such complexity, such elegance, such endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful? It is no accident that we were... We see green almost everywhere we look. It is no accident that we find ourselves perched in the midst of a blossoming and flourishing tree of life. It is no accident that we're surrounded by millions of other species, eating, growing, rotting, swimming, walking, flying, burrowing, stalking, chasing, fleeing, outpacing, outwitting. We are surrounded by endless forms, most beautiful, most wonderful, and it is no accident and all God's people said, amen. Amen. It is no accident. I would agree with that. I would agree that it is no accident. We see wonder all around us, and it is no accident. May I present to you that if theory one is your only option, that it explains everything, that, that evolution explains beauty on its own without any creator, that evolution explains everything, May I present to you that, that you're putting yourself in a very peculiar and hopeless place. It's peculiar because you're forced to describe evidence of design without a designer. And we'll talk about the hopeless piece in a little bit. You're also putting yourself in a hopeless piece because ultimately nothing you could do ultimately matters. Now, in contrast, I'm going to offer three others real quickly, three other theories that Christians hold. Christians hold each of these different theories, and I'm not going to present one as the right one. I'm just going to present these three to, again, make the point that there is more than one theory of evolution. And in contrast, Christianity, as they attempt to offer an explanation for the origin of life, it's one that's not only plausible, but it's hope-filled. There is a big contrast between these three that we're going to look at now and the first one. Here's a second evolution theory, and it's this, evolution smevolution. That is not the official term, but that's how some people feel. There are some Christians who reject the theory of evolution altogether. Now, if you do hold that position and you say there's nothing to evolution altogether, my, my word to you this morning would be to hold that with humility, to hold that position with humility instead of saying this is the only alternative to position one. I would encourage you to hold that with humility. Here's an example why. This is from Psalm 139, one of my favorite psalms. A portion of Psalm 139 says this, starting with verse 13. Speaking of God, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, God, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. The reason I offer this one up, if you hold position two, is this, most of us would look at this passage and we would say, you can hold this passage and you can hold science together. That you don't have to question the science behind embryology, right, embryonic development. You don't have to make a choice between that and the scriptures. There are those who would say the same is true when it comes to evolutionary theory to one extent or another. That you don't have to either choose Genesis 1 or evolutionary theory. Just again, to to be humble. I've seen firsthand what can happen, and many of you have too, when you tell a young person you must choose between theory one and theory two, and there are no other choices. You can put that person in an unnecessary choice. One of the books that I recommend 
in, in today's notes, I recommend three. One of them is the ESV Study Bible. If you happen to have it with you today and you open up, take a look at Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2. This can be really hard to see from the back, but the only verses on this entire page are verses 1 and 2. Is there a lot more writing there than verse 1 and 2? That's because these verses are so loaded. There is so much going on in Genesis 1 and 2. I'm not saying it's all symbolic. I'm just telling you there is a whole lot going on here. Only two verses are written on the entire page. Everything else is commentary attempting to to get behind the richness of this text. We have to remember that when we interpret, if we want to have a literal interpretation of the scriptures, you can't start with English. If you want a literal interpretation of the scriptures, you have to dig in. What does the Bible mean when it says day? What does the Bible mean when it says Adam? What does the Bible mean when it writes in poetry instead of narrative? What's going on in this rich, rich, rich book? Do I believe God created the world? Absolutely. Do I believe that Adam and Eve were literal people? Yes, I do. Do I believe that God could have created the world in 144 hours? Sure, he could have. But as I attempt to be faithful to the text, and I want to be faithful to the text, I also remember to keep this in mind. Here's a great quote from a guy named John Walton. He writes this. He says, God can create in any way that he sees fit. It is no less an act of his sovereign power if he chooses to do it over extended billions of years. It is still accomplished, and then I add this, sustained by his word. One of the things, I I think about this phrase, and I think about the scriptures, and I think about our disagreements about Genesis 1. One of the things that drew me to this denomination we're part of, because I'm an outsider coming in, one of the things that drew me to the covenant was how they approached theology. If you ask us, a person who's really rooted in the covenant, you ask us, "What what does the covenant believe about You know what we're going to point you to? Our answer is the same. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? That's our answer, our starting point for everything when it comes to what do we believe um, about theology. What does the Bible say? What what we're doing then as as a covenant, as as a group of people, we're trying to get people into the word. We're trying to say dig in. Dig in deep to the text. And don't just dig in by yourself. Dig in in community and go to the scriptures together and bring your best thinking and your best research and then talk and discuss and you're going to find that iron sharpens iron. Digging into the word. Now, we only have time in a sermon to just scratch the surface. So in today's notes, what I do is I offer two more books that I've, I've read both of them cover to cover and I find that they're helpful. If you're not familiar with theories two, which we just touched on a little bit, and three, which I'm going to touch on soon, I would encourage you to read that book called A Case by the Creator. He does a pretty good job of, of speaking to those two first theory, or the theories two and three. And then John Walton, his book that I recommend you notes, he does a very good job of speaking to theory four. So let's get to theories, theories three and four, starting with three. Here we go. A third theory of evolution is this. Evolutionary processes may be somewhat compatible with Genesis 1. There's a whole lot of Christians that fit into this category. And this one is probably, well, I, I, probably the one I'm the, the most closest to, but kind of somewhere between 3 and 4. 
Evolutionary processes may be somewhat compatible with Genesis 1. People who hold to this theory recognize that the Hebrew word translated as day in Genesis 1 can also mean a longer period of time than 24 hours. And they believe it's possible that the six, quote, days of creation were spread out over a much longer time period than just 144 hours. And they believe perhaps God used some evolutionary processes along the way. Now, there's those who go further than position three into position four, and position four is this. There are those who believe, Christians who believe, evolutionary processes may not just be somewhat, but very compatible with Genesis 1. Again, I think John Walton does an excellent job of presenting this case. And in his book, he asks what I think is a fair question. He says, what if Genesis 1 isn't trying to answer all of the questions that modern minds are asking? What if Genesis 1 isn't trying to answer the question of how materially was the universe created? What if it's addressing deeper questions than that? He writes this. I love this analogy. He writes this on page 34. He says this. He says, when you go to the theater, perhaps to see a great rendition of uh, Batman versus creation versus evolution, opening on Broadway soon, right? We're going to turn it into a musical. It's going to be awesome. All right, in a, he, he says this. When you go to the theater, you may have a passing interest in the construction of the set and stage works, but we understand that the play exists in the roles of the performers, when a person comes in late to the theater, to the show, they ask, what happened so far? The question is not answered by information about the costume designer or the scriptwriter or the hiring of the cast. Telling the person about all that would be offering the wrong sort of origins information. I find that to be a helpful analogy. In other words, he's saying, what if evolutionary theory is more like that describes how the set was created but what Genesis is trying to do is something different. It's describing God and what God was doing. What was his intent? What were his purposes? I'm not trying to convince you that's the right theory. I'm trying to just say he might have a point here. It's worth exploring with the scriptures, with the scriptures. Here's, again, another great quote from John Walton. He says this. He says, since we view the Bible as authoritative it is a dangerous thing to change the meaning of the text into something that it never intended to say. If you're trying to tell people this is the one and only way to interpret Genesis 1, you better be right. Do you hear me on that? If you're going to tell them this is the one and only, you better be right. Because the scripture is not something to mess with. Almost everyone agrees, almost everyone agrees that there's a lot of layers to Genesis. That's one of the reasons I can't swallow Walton's book, Hook, Line, and Sinker, because I think there's more layers than he gets at there. But, but there's more layers here. Almost everyone agrees that the book of Genesis is so rich. There's so many things happening on so many levels. What if one of them is the idea that God is creating a temple with the universe? Amen. What if one of the things, one of many, what if one of the things that God is doing in Genesis 1 is describing how a temple was created? And the reason that some of us think that's one of the things going on is because here's something from the creator himself. These are the words of God as recorded in Isaiah 66, verses 1 through 2. This is what the Lord says. The Lord says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. 
Where is the house you're going to build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. There are those who make the case that Genesis, among other things, can be read through the lens of God preparing a temple and then filling the temple with his presence and making it holy. And let's quickly, if you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis 1 and take a look at this. God is, to see if it doesn't speak to the idea of God forming, not necessarily a temple, but forming and creating and bringing order from chaos. Genesis 1, 1 and beyond says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit was hovering over over the waters. Now, it's important to note, and I wish you had more time, it's important to note that in the ancient world, waters were a sign of disorder and chaos. They were a scary thing. They were, they were, signed, they were, they were symbolic of the unknown, of the mysterious and inaccessible and untamed. If you were an ancient person, you couldn't get very far into the deep. And so you didn't know what was there. It was in that context with all of the waters, right? God does and begins a good work. And God says to the darkness and the chaos, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day. He called the darkness night. And there was evening and then there was morning the first day. The first of God's creative works is light. And in the ancient world, darkness was scary too. God speaks light into existence. And not only that, now what happens is darkness becomes associated with rest. And I love how the Hebrew day starts. There was night and then there was morning, a day. Our day begins with rest. Our work day begins with rest. Isn't that beautiful? I think it's beautiful. And God says, let there be then an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made an expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was an evening and there was a morning and there was a second day. This was fascinating, digging in and seeing what the commentators say about this verse. They talk about how in the ancient world they understood what we think of as sky and space, they understood that there was earth, solid, right? And then there was space, solid, like a canopy. A canopy that would let the water in when it would rain, and a canopy that was more like a ceiling when it came to the stars and the lights. Just fascinating. It brings a whole new perspective on, to me anyway, on this passage. As Genesis 1 continues, God continues to bring order and beauty and life from darkness and chaos and non-life. If we had time, we could go verse by verse and look how God separates the waters from the land. And then he fills the land with plants and vegetation. God sets the sun and the moon and the stars in the heavens to mark seasons and days and years. God fills the world with swarms of living creatures, each according to their kind. And they fill the seas and they fill the earth and they fill the sky. And then last of all, God creates humankind in his image. So if you're using a temple understanding, the temple is now complete except for the most important thing. A temple isn't a temple unless the object of your worship is present. And let's jump ahead, if you have your Bibles, to Genesis 2, verse 1. And it says this, Thus, the heavens and the earth were what? Finished. Remember that word. 
the earth and the heavens were finished, and God rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Again, remember that word finished. You're going to see that word again in just a minute. The temple had been built, and now on the seventh day, a number that symbolizes, a number that symbolizes completion in the ancient world, on the seventh day, God rests. And if you study the Hebrew understanding of rest, rest is more than the absence of work. It is such a beautiful word in, in Hebrew. It's such a beautiful concept. If you study the concept of rest, it means peace. It means order. Rest is like this. Rest is a liberated France after D-Day. That's rest. As the Nazis are being pushed out and freedom is restored and war is over and oppression is ended and now we can rebuild and rest. That's rest. Rest is God taking his rightful place in the garden that he created. However, if you've read Genesis 3, you know what happens next. Not long after God takes his rightful place in his temple, humanity rebels against their creator, their loving and just creator. And unholiness, unholiness now fills the temple. So there's more work to be done. It was finished, but there's more work to be done if humanity is to be saved. Because humanity is no able, more able to save ourselves from the consequences of our sin than we are to speak a universe into existence. So God does a work. He does a work that destroys the power of sin without destroying us. And he accomplishes his saving work through a Roman cross. Now take a look at this. I'd never noticed this before. I've been reading the Bible a long time and I never noticed this connection between Genesis what we just read in Genesis, and what Jesus said as he breathed his last. Take a look at this, John 19, 30. As Jesus gives up his life, he said, it is what? It's finished. But wait, wasn't it finished in Genesis? It is finished, said Jesus. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Please write this down in your notes. Here's the last of our talk points today. He who began the good work has finished it, and he will be faithful to complete it. God finished a good work, didn't he? With creation, he finished a good work. Of course he did. Jesus finished a good work, didn't he? He finished a good work. And the Alpha and Omega will be faithful to complete the good work that they began. Here's just a teaser from the last book of the Bible, Revelation. I love you began a good work, has and will be faithful to complete it. Revelation 21, verse 1, no more see. And when you think about the richness of what that represents, the chaos, the, the fear, the unknown, the bad unknown, the bad mystery, there'll be no more of that. No more see. There'll be a bride and groom and not just one man, one woman, not just human marriage. This is going to be Christ returning for his bride. And who is his bride? The church. And it says God will dwell with us again. There won't be the unholiness, the separation. God will dwell with us. Continuing on, more from Revelation 21.4. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more pain. The curse is lifted. 
Revelation 21, 5, God is now seated on the throne where he should be. Revelation 21, 22, the Lord and the Lamb are the temple. And that one's fascinating because when you think about a temple, temples are generally designed where there's more holiness closer to the center of the temple, right, where the deity is. That's the holy of holies. The further you get away from the deity, there's more and more unholiness. Well, if God is the temple and he's everywhere, where's the holiness? It's everywhere. Beautiful. Now, as Christians, we're going to disagree. Do you go with theory two? Do you go with theory three? Do you go with theory four? We're going to disagree on that. Can we all agree that God has and will complete his good work? Can we all agree on that? Amen. Those who hold theory one, now, you're, that's a different category. It's a different category than two, three, and four. As I mentioned earlier, theory number one, it is both peculiar and it's hopeless. It's peculiar because the word appears, world appears to have been designed and not an accident. It's hopeless because if it's true, it leads to an outlook like this. As much as you try to do mental gymnastics around it, it leads to an outlook like this. This is a, a quote here from uh, one of the books I referenced. When actress Shirley MacLaine asked Stephen Hawking whether he believes God created the universe, Hawking replied simply, no. He told the BBC, we are such insignificant creatures on a minor planet, on a very average star, in the outer suburbs of one of 100,000 million galaxies. It is difficult to believe in a God that would care about us or even notice our existence. Isn't that sad? when you figure God's destiny for us, when you figure how good he was to create this world, God has no needs. And that's a huge understanding of God. He has no needs. So why does he create something as beautiful as this world? Not for himself. He creates it because he wants to share his joy with others. What a beautiful thought. Christianity isn't just plausible, it's hopeful. Because if Christianity is true, then there is a God who so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. And he's going to send that son back. He's going to come again in glory to make all things right. And that's the reality we want to give you a chance to respond to today. The word says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, the night prior to saying it is finished. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink or eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.